Therese and I were married in 1990, April 7th, 1990. Uh, up to that time, we, I mean, we were living a crazy, uh, disciplined life, uh, undisciplined perhaps, uh, staying up too late, getting up too early, those sort of things. And I would drop her off, I would go back to my apartment, and I'm staying up a little bit later. Three weeks before the wedding, what we did is we um, just killed ourselves, basically, because we needed to get a lot of things done before the wedding. I had two grad classes that I had to finish before the wedding. I had all the work that I had to do now. Uh, then there was we were going to be gone for two weeks, so I had to get all that work done as well. Uh, Teresa is doing a lot of the wedding stuff herself, and so we just did not take good care of ourselves. So someone gave us tickets to uh, flight tickets to San Diego, Southern California. So we got on the plane right after the wedding. We went to San Diego. By the time we we landed, Teresa had a high fever. She was throwing up. It was coming out both ends. It was just a mess, and so. <laughs> We're in a cheap hotel by the airport, and I don't know how to take care of it. I don't know how to take care of myself, more or less anybody else. So I'm running all over San Diego because I'm figuring the best way you take care of someone, I learned this from my dad, was to drug them. So I think I'll find a pharmacy, and I'll get some medicine, and things will be okay. And so I'm trying to do that. Uh, about the third day, she starts feeling a little bit better. So we got a little car, and we drove. Through. We looked at the map, and Sequoia National Forest wasn't too far from San Diego. So we got, we drove up, and I, I always wanted to see the giant redwoods. And I thought, man, if I cut off the bottom corner of this Sequoia National Forest, I'll see the redwoods. Because certainly the redwoods, the sequoias, are in the Sequoia National Forest. You would think, right? Well, you cut off the southern tip of the Sequoia National Forest, well, it's nothing but desert. And so I took over, we got over to, to Bakersfield, and I got the map, and I'm showing the guy at the, the hotel thing. I'm saying, Sequoia National Forest, where are the sequoias? He said, well, that's, that's like seven hours north, man. You're in the Bay Area. I'm so... Sequoia, don't you, wouldn't you think sequoias should be in the Sequoia National Forest? We're crying out loud. And go, well, I don't know. I didn't make up the map. So we're, we're spending the time in Bakersfield. I wasn't used to high desert altitude, so we, I fell asleep by the pool. Bad, bad move. I got so sunburned. I mean, it hurts. I was never upset. I had a high fever now from the sunburn. I, I mean... I, no one touched me. Don't get near me. I got my wife's sickness, so I'm throwing out both ends. My wife had a relapse, so she's all sick. We're in a hotel room, and it's just a mess. Next morning was Easter Sunday. And, you know, you always go to church Easter Sunday. You know, I mean, you might sleep in some, you know, sleeping on Easter. So I, I get up, ah, we're going to church. And she looks at me, are you serious? She's going, up, yeah, come on, let's go. She goes, oh, I'm not going to church. Oh, yes, you are going to church. You know, huge. You can bet, when I was single and I used to dream about my honeymoon, this was not what I envisioned. It was not what I thought. I thought, is this what I was I do? Is this what it's all about? Today, when Teresa and I look back on our honeymoon, it's with regret. Uh, regret that we didn't take care of ourselves. Regret that we spent too much money, that we didn't plan. Lots of regret. Now, if we were to go around, I'm sure everyone's got your regret story or stories. What would your regret story be? It might be, uh, you know, I thought this guy was going to be, you know, the Prince Charming, man, man of my dreams. I thought this woman was Mrs. Right, right? No, 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 Mrs. Wrong is how it turned out to be. This was a surefire deal. I was talking with someone just a while back, 50 years old, but they had, had got this surefire deal. Man, they were going to double their money, and so, of course, they vested everything in. They talked to her mom, who was 70-something years old, about what an incredible deal this was, and surefire thing. She invested all of her money in this, 
And yes, it bottomed out. They lost everything. Here's this couple, 50 years old, this scale 70-something. They don't have anything now. After everything that they had, they had worked for is gone, it's been, it's been evaporated. Maybe your regret would be educationally. You know, I just goofed around too much in school. Or relationally, I just didn't pay enough attention. I should have done better with that. Or your job. It was a good job. I liked that job. Why did I let that one go? Now, often in this life, even with those horrible regrets, we can look forward. You know, you deal with it, and and if it's financial, you get some counsel, maybe you get a plan, you get some discipline, and hopefully, maybe, you can get the hope anyway that you can pull yourself out of the mess you're in. Educationally, well, you go back to community college, and you do what you need to do to get your GPA up and to to do what you need to go. Relationally, you might not be able to fix that. But you may have learned something so that as you go forward, yeah, you cannot do that one again or or make a better call or whatever else. Usually there's hope. But can you imagine the absolute worst case scenario regret story? You're on your deathbed. You know there's no hope. The doctor, there's just no hope. You're, You're done. And you know you only got so many heartbeats and you used just about all of them for nothing. You've wasted them. No, you can't fix this one. Now, what would you do if I told you that Scripture says, Bible says, there's a way you can avoid that. God promises that if you, if you apply this one thing, you know what? That ultimate regret story will never be yours. Well, you can. I mean, let's, see, let's see. Go ahead. We'll skip the first one. Yeah, we'll get to that one in a second. It says, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love. Why? For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being in, uh, ineffective and unproductive. And, you know, it's just a promise. That's a great promise. And so we're, we've been trying to memorize this section. I hope you've been trying. Maybe you haven't. But, but maybe one day you'll be able to, uh, as we want to ingrain this text into us, because it's a promise that God has made that if you apply these things, that ultimate regret scenario won't be yours. And so we're going to try to quote now. If you've got your Bibles here with you, maybe you're not ready to quote, but just open them up to Second Peter 1 and kind of follow along. And let's give this a shot and see how far we go. I think we're going to verse 9 today. So let's see what we can do. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through our knowledge of him. Christ our Lord. Yeah, oh, come on, guys. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, that's his glory and goodness, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith and to... I'm sorry, do what? Goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, and to self-control, and to perseverance, and to godliness, and to brotherly kindness. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive. 
But if anyone does not have them and has forgotten that he's been cleansed from his past sins. Next week, we're in two more. We can get it. Come on, we can get it. We can get it. We can get it. Well, the next word that, that, that Peter puts out in this recipe, basically, for an effective and productive life is the word godliness. Fascinating word. Fascinating word. Because, you know, every other word in this list is a secular word. The only thing that gives it any kind of spiritual understanding is a spiritual context. That's what nuances the word. But you can find all of these other words in some secular conversation about whatever, but not this word. This word is is purely religious. And so Peter's readers, this word would have stuck out like a sore thumb. And, and what does this mean, though? It's an interesting word. He could have used different words that would have been translated godliness, but he used a very rare word, a very difficult word to, to translate, actually. One of my commentators this week said this word is, what, how do you call it, virtually untranslatable or whatever. Well, that doesn't help us a whole lot, right? But as you do an, an etymology on, on this word, you dig into this thing, you study it, you find that it, in the Old Testament, would refer to the fear of God. Or the respect of God. If you dig deeper, it is, it means this. It means to seek God's presence. Um, okay, that's a little bit better, but still, how, what, what is that all about? I mean, first of all, as uh, believers, aren't we always in his presence? Well, first of all, it is a Hebraic term. Again, Old Testament, if you've got an older version of the Bible, it would say something like to seek his face. Now, and if you, you, you talk about getting face-to-face time with some face time with somebody or going face-to-face with somebody, often that can have negative connotations. But if you want face time with the king and you, you ask for that and you're, you're given that, what does that mean? That means you are eyeball to eyeball with the king. He is giving you your, his pure, undivided attention. And you're giving, hopefully, him yours. Uh, attention with the king. It, it means being in his presence consciously where he's focusing on you and you are focusing on him and you are doing everything and saying all your words in relationship to his being there. Uh, let me give you a, 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 a picture on this. Well, well, first of all, let me ask you or, or um, mention this because we, we asked a second ago, aren't we always in his presence? On one level, yeah, God is omnipresent. That's what it means to be God. He's everywhere all the time. He's never one place more than he is somewhere else. Uh, he's everywhere. This is, this is God. He's omnipresent. But there is a special unction we have, a special presence in believers, right? John 14 through 16, he says that he will come and make his abode within us. Ephesians 1, he's given us his Holy Spirit. We are the temple of, of the Spirit. It lets us know that I will never leave you or forsake you. So there's a special presence as a believer. But yet, there is an ability that we have, I guess, to not be in his presence. And here's the illustration. Let's just say I'm standing right here, middle of the aisle, some, some Tuesday. Nobody's around. All you guys are gone. It's after hours. Nobody's around here. And I'm standing there. and It's been a hard day. Now I've had some things happen and some phone call and this crisis happening over here and it seems hopeless and something going on in my family. And that's a tough thing to deal with. And I'm tired and, and it, no one's understanding me. And, I, you know, we pity party ourselves. I do this sometimes, too. And I'm standing there and this, this is just so hard. And I'm alone. And I think, you know, if only my wife was here because Therese knows me better than anybody else. I know she will shoot straight with me. 
but yet she loves me better than anybody else. If I could just share this with her very wise gal, I wish I could do that. Maybe I'm just lonely. It would be so nice just to sit and be with her, just to hold hands, just to, just to, to be with her. Maybe it'd be fun just to talk. I heard a funny story that I just would want to share with her, just to enjoy companionship in life. And, but I'm standing there by myself. And all of a sudden, I turn around, and she's there, six inches away. Now, think for a second. I mean, I'm hugging, and we're laughing and joking, high five, maybe fighting. And we're, we don't do the honeymoon thing again. But we're just, we're just having a good time. And what has changed between the two scenarios? Well, physically, absolutely nothing. She was there the entire time. But in my mind, she might as well not have been, because I was living my life as if she wasn't around. We do this with God often. God is, of course, with us. He's everywhere. He's especially with us as, as believers. But a lot of stuff blocks his, his presence from our view, whether it's temptation or sin, some sort of busyness, uh, our jobs and material things. And, uh, and so much stuff that we just don't see him. And so, you know, he's right there, of course. But we live our life as if he's not around because we don't see him. And what, what Peter is saying here. Is when you add these things to your life, you've got to make sure you add this quest to be with him. That's the, the vertical relationship. You know, fascinating stuff. The next two words are, are going to be um, brotherly kindness and love, right? They're the horizontal relationship. And it's interesting that Peter says, before you get to the horizontal stuff, which basically all of our religiosity is lived out here. I mean, everything is lived out in relationship, basically. He's saying, before you get there... You need to keep in mind that your vertical relationship is solid. Because if this is not healthy, this is not going to be healthy. Now, so often, we want to make sure, forget the vertical thing. We just want our horizontal stuff to be healthy and good. And it may be okay in this life, but it will never be what it could have been if our vertical relationship with our God was solid. He's the one who's going to show us how to do this. And so if this is not, the vertical relationship is not healthy... This is really not going to be either. And so Peter says, before we mess with the, the words that talk about the horizontal relationships, we have to, you have to, I have to make sure that our vertical relationship is lined up. It's, it's easy with this Christianity thing. If you've been walking with the Lord for any amount of time, you know this is true. We can turn Christianity, and we've seen other people do it, let's be honest, let's indict ourselves a little bit, into a list of do's and don'ts. It's easy to do. It's easy to do. Going to go to my study, going to serve a little bit, going to go do that fellowship thing, going to go to another study, going to serve a little bit more. And we just live our Christian life on the horizontal. All the other stuff we got to do, responsibilities we got, and good things, important stuff we got to take care of, that's it. But if, if we do that to the neglect of that vertical relationship, you know what's going to happen. You know what's going to happen. One day you're studying for that class that you've got to teach, and you're realizing, I don't live this. Or you're going to drop to your knees to pray, and you get right back up. Or you're driving to work one day, and it dawns on you. I don't really believe this. This, just the horizontal, will not, it's good, it's gifts from God, but it will not satisfy. It, it will not fill the void. But when we look for it to do that, we will have nothing but discouragement and pain in life. Now, this is this 
presence of his. It's, it's why we were created, right? Genesis 3. You, you remember, you know the story. God created us and all those things and then sin enters in. Check this out. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. It's hid from his presence. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Now, uh, maybe this is all, all literal. Okay, let's not, I'm not saying it's not. But what you don't want to be thinking is that God and Adam had an appointment at 2 o'clock every day. They met at the sycamore tree and then they would walk kind of hand in hand. He would kind of walk in God's glowing aura and then God would go back somewhere else and he'd be by himself. Don't be thinking that because that's not what's going on. The issue is that God created man for relationship, to go in his presence, to be in his presence. And up to this point, that's what Adam was trying to do. But sin entered. And now he's trying to hide from God's presence. And so God doesn't ask Adam, where are you? Like he didn't know where he was. Maybe he's behind the rock, maybe behind the evergreen. I don't know where he's at. It wasn't going on. Adam didn't know where he was in relationship to God. And so God says, Adam, where are you? And I created you for a relationship with me. And we used to enjoy it. But right now, where are you at, Adam? Maybe here's the deal. Maybe he'd come to us this morning and say, you know, we used to walk together. What happened? Where are you? Where have you been? Where are you at right now? Where are you with that? It's important. It's why we were created to be in his presence. And it's why we were recreated. Jesus, when he's selecting his apostles, interesting, says he appointed 12 designating them apostles. Notice for what reason? That they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. He was going to have them do lots of horizontal stuff, good horizontal stuff. Preach the gospel. I mean, save the world. That's pretty important stuff. But that's secondary. The most important thing, the first thing that he called them to do was to be with him. We spend so much time doing that we don't have any time to be and we lose. Our our vision is that we're going to transform Erie by introducing folk to a transformational relationship with Jesus. Well, that's got to start here. We need to be transformed. That's where that has has to come from. Now, it's easy to... To say, it's easy for me to hear, this is how you, you add godliness. Okay, got it, ABC, got it, taken care of, and I'll straight up forget it. But when I see it done, well, it kind of it takes a little bit easier. So this morning what we want to do is we want to look very briefly at a case study in Scripture of, of how this works, how this applying godliness thing works. If you've got your Bibles, I trust you do. Second Chronicles, one of my, yes, favorite books in the Bible, Second Chronicles. Chapter 14. Oh, I hope you got your balls. By the way, this is a side point. If your quiet time is a little bit, uh, you need to spruce it up a bit. Let me encourage you. Second Chronicles as a whole is a great book. First Chronicles, too many names, you're going to get lost. But Second Chronicles is a good book. Especially 14, 15, and 16. We're just going to skim, barely skim so much great stuff here. Solomon, remember, he reigned over all the nation of Israel. Then as soon as he died, civil war, and you had it north Israel and south Israel. The north called themselves Israel. South called themselves Judah. And so Solomon's boy, um, Rehoboam, was in charge of the south. Then when he died, his son, Abijah, was in charge of the south. Then when he died, his son, Asa, this would have been Solomon's great-grandchild, was on the throne in the south. His name was 
was Asa, and Israel or Judah was a mess spiritually. It was just not doing well. In chapter 14, verse 2, Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. And look, look, we, look what he had to do. This tells you the condition of the nation of Israel, of Judah. I mean, the, this, this, these are the good guys, the guys in the south. He removed the foreign altars and the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. Those are all pagan idolatry stuff. Those are not decorations, just pagan idolatry stuff that he has. He commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, and to obey his laws and commands. He removed the high places and incense altars in every town in Judah, and the kingdom was at peace under him. He built up the fortified cities of Judah since the land was at peace. No one was at war with him during those years, for the Lord had given him peace or rest. The author wants you to understand that because Asa is seeking God, God's granting him peace. And this is going to be the um, principle out of this whole text is God always blesses those who seek him. Always. Blessing may not come when we expect it to come. It may not come how we expect it to come. But God always Blesses those who seek him, always. Uh, He says in verse 7, let us build up these towns, he said to Judah, and put walls around them with towers, gates, and bars. The land is still ours because we have sought the Lord our God. We sought him, and he has given us rest on every side. So they built, and they prospered. Sometimes, seeking God... uh, Gives blessing. I'm not into the health, wealth, and prosperity deal. I know that's not, it doesn't always end up being the case. But let's face it, when you do something according to its directions, doesn't it go smoother? When you live life according to the directions, according to your relationship with God, the vertical relationship with God, it will go smoother. This is how I know. Paul says in Timothy, he says, don't give yourself, Timothy, to uh, wives' tales. Uh, godless myths. That's waste your time. Is what he's saying. He says, but pursue godliness. He says, physical and exercise is profitable. Yeah, it's got some profit to it. But godliness is profitable for all things. Get this: having promise of the life down here, as well as the one to come. The stronger our vertical relationship, our relationship with God, the the, the more healthy our horizontal. Uh, there, there will be. God always blesses those who seek him. Always. That will happen. And that's happened, obviously, with Asa, Asa. But it doesn't always happen, does it? Sometimes you're seeking him. Sometimes you're doing the right thing. And you're looking and you're building this relationship and it's strong. And then something goes wrong. Asa, what's, what happens is, is the, Zerah, the Cushite, the, Egypt, and the Libyans, they put together their army and they start coming after him. And he's hanging out one day and all of a sudden he gets reports that the Egyptians are on the march. And you're not going to believe how many people are in their army, Asa. Now, Asa gets his army together, which is prepared. He's got 580,000. That's a lot of people. But the text says that the Egyptian army is a thousand thousands. It's got a million people. Or it could just be translated, un- it's not countable. It's, 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 it's a vast army, your text might say. Whatever, however many he has, the picture is he's got a lot more than Asa. And so Asa's looking at this going, oh man, what happens? No, no. It is a defining moment for you when the wheels fall off. You're trying to seek him. You're trying to do the right thing and life goes south. It's a defining moment. What are you going to do? Well, this is what Asa did. Verse 11. 
Then Asa called to the Lord his God and said, Lord, there's no one like you to help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, O Lord, our God, for we rely on you. And in your name, we have come against this vast army. Again, notice that he wasn't just sitting back doing nothing. He had his army ready. They were coming against. They were doing what they were supposed to do. But he says, oh, Lord, uh, we rely on you. You are our God. Do not let man prevail against you. Do you see that? He doesn't say don't let man prevail against us. He says we are your representative. Ace is concerned for himself and his people, obviously. But he's really concerned about God. This is substantial. He does what he needs to do, but he comes before God. He's seeking God. Well, it says the Lord struck down the Cushites before Asa and Judah. And the rest of the chapter will outline that a little bit further. But God blessed because God always blesses those who seek him. Always. Let's go to chapter 15. It says, the spirit of God came upon Azariah, son of Obed. Now, keep in mind, the word of God at this point, there's only five books in the word of God at this point. You've got the law, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This is it. So the prophets were the word of God. They would come with a word from God. And so the word of God, it's the spirit of God. He comes on Azariah and he went out to meet Asa and said to him, listen to me, Asa and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you when you are with him. If you seek him. He will be found by you. Of course he will. Because God always blesses those who seek him. Always. It's not sometimes. He always does that. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Okay. King Asa hears this word from prophet. What does he do with this? Down in verse 8. It says, When Asa heard these words and the prophecy of Azariah, son of Obed, the prophet, he took courage. Now, it, it also says he removed the detestable idols from the whole land of Judah and Benjamin and from the towns that he had captured in the hills of Ephraim. He repaired the altar of the Lord that was in front of the portico of the Lord's temple. Now, the wild thing is he had already done that once. Several years back, he had already done that. So I'm guessing that the prophet here also had a word of rebuke and had a word of challenge for him. Straighten stuff up. Let's get moving on it. He said, don't, don't get lazy on me now. And so Asa responds to the word of God. Well, he submits himself to it. He takes courage. He repents. He does what he needs to do. Now, isn't this interesting? We may have cleaned some sin out in the past, but it's just sins just like weeds, isn't it? You pull them all out. You see sticker weeds in my garden thing, my landscaping. I pull those things out. And for whatever reason, the next day, they're all there again, it seems like. You've got to constantly be working on weeds. Sin, if you, if you rest a little bit. If you're not looking, if you're not conscious, if you're not working on it, it's right there. It's coming back. It did for, did for Asa. But he listened to the seer. Verse 9. Then he assembled all Judah and Benjamin and the people from Ephraim, uh, Manasseh and Simeon, who had settled among them. For, for large numbers had come over to him from Israel when they saw that the Lord God was with him. I wish we had more time to unpack this. Because he's in the south. Do we, do we have the map up? There's a map. See, he's in the south. He's in Judah. But folk from Ephraim and Manasseh, that's, that's the northern area, they heard that, that Asa's heart is right, that he's seeking God. And so what they do? They left home. They packed up. Let's go down. Young people, single folk, you want a godly spouse? And trust me, you want a godly spouse, girls. 
You want a man who will treat you as Christ treats his church. You want a man who's going to respect and honor you. A man who will, will lead but with gentleness. You, you want a godly spouse. Guys, you want a godly girl. You, you, you want, I tell my guys, don't get a Christian girl. Christian girls are a dime a dozen. There's tons of Christian girls over there. You get a godly woman. There's a big difference. There's a big difference. Tell my girls, don't get a, don't get a Christian guy. Christian guys... I've seen, you wouldn't believe what I've seen in Christian guys. Get a godly man. Oh, there's a big difference. Godliness. You want, you want a godly person? That's how you get one. I can tell you how you get one. Godliness attracts godliness. The, the, the people who are godly up in the north, there are not a lot of them. When they, the ones who are up there hear that there's godliness in the south. They're coming down. The best way to get a godly spouse is to be a godly person. It does no guarantees, all that stuff. Uh, but godliness is attractive. To godliness. So the folk were coming down. That was just a side point, just worth whatever. Um, Then, verse 12. They entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, with, let's look at some of these superlatives he uses, with all their heart and soul, all who would not seek the Lord, the God of Israel, were put to death. There's an evangelistic strategy for you, right? Uh, Whether small or great, man or woman, they took an oath to the Lord with loud acclamation and with shouting and with trumpets and with horns. All Judah rejoiced about the oath because they had sworn it wholeheartedly. They sought God eagerly and he was found by them. Of course he was found by them because God always blesses those who seek him. Always. It's just what he does. So the Lord gave him rest on every side. I love this this right here because on the Jewish calendar, there were certain days on their calendar that they got together to celebrate. Most of the Jewish holidays were not solemn. There was, there was, was you've got the Day of Atonement. you got some. But for the most part, they're feasts, they're celebrations. And you celebrated when it was on the calendar. Or you celebrated right after a big war or something and there was victory. But here are these guys. This is midweek. It's like nothing special going on. They're just excited that God is God. And that they're seeking him. And because they're seeking him, he's being found by them. Because, of course, he will. Because God always blesses those who seek him. So if, in fact, people are seeking him, there is a, a celebration. I'm not saying that everything is all rainbows and sunshine all the time if you're seeking him. But for one whose emphasis is not on the horizontal, but is on the vertical, there, there is a joy. There, that's the joy of, of the Lord. It's not conditional. There, there's a joy there. It's not on the screen, but let me just mention verse 16. I think this was interesting. Uh, King Asa also deposed his grandmother, Maka, from her position as queen mother because she had made a repulsive Asherah pole. His commitment to God was greater even than his commitment with family members. Very significant. Very substantial. So so chapter 15 ends on a good note. They're they're seeking after God. God's blessing because God always blesses those who seek after him. Always. But then you get to chapter 16. It looks like in your Bible maybe there's an eighth of an inch between 15 and 16. Don't believe it. There's about 20 years between 15 and 16. A lot of stuff happens in 20 years. There's peace and prosperity, but as you know and I know, sometimes peace and prosperity is your greatest test for godliness. Isn't it? Seeking him when things are going well. Ah, things are going well. Don't need him a whole lot. This kind of just shrinks up. And it looks like that's what happened with, with Asa because what's going to happen in chapter 16 is now he hears word. He's, he's, maybe he's watching one day. And Basa, the king of, 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 of Israel, he's in Judah, king of Israel, starts sending his army guys to the border. 
And he's just watching it each day as more and more troops show up on the border and they're polishing their spears. And they're building embankments and fortresses from which they're going to launch an attack. And Asa's looking at this going, oh, man. And there are more guys coming and coming. Asa's going, oh, I'm counting here and I'm counting. Our guy. We're going to get killed here. And he also knows something else. His, his intelligence reports tell him that Basa, the king of the north, has, has a treaty with Ben-Hadad, the king of the Arameans. And he knows when Ben-Hadad sends his army to help Basa twice, I'm just going to totally get killed. Well, what did he do last time he faced this situation? What's he do this time? He's got a plan because Ace is smart. So he goes to his temple. It's kind of like a bank in some ways of, of Judah. And he takes out everything. He sends it to Ben-Hadad. He said, I'm paying you a little bit more than Basha is. Once you break your ties with him, I'm paying you to be my hitman. Once you go attack him, divert his attention away from me. And Ben-Hadad, being the man of loyalty and integrity and the character that he is, says, absolutely, I'll do this. And so he attacks the northern kingdom. And so Basha and all of his troops withdraw from, from Asa. Well, Asa's liking this. He's taking all his troops. They march out. They get all the weaponry that was left behind and the building utensils and all those things. And they bring them back and they build up their towns with it. And Asa's going, I love it when a plan comes together. You know, he's thinking this is good. But then a prophet comes, another prophet. Like happened to him 20 plus years ago in verse 7. It says at that time, chapter 16, at that time, Hananiah the seer came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, because you relied on the king of Aram and not on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Aram has escaped your hand. Now, he's got to be doing a double take here. What, what, um, what do you mean here? I mean, the king of Aram, that was never my problem. My problem was just Basha. And the prophet says, oh, no, 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 no. The king of Aram's warfare was going to be your problem, too. You just didn't know it. Uh, When we were camping one time, I think Lauren was two years old. We were at the the campground pool. And I remember we're sitting, Teresa and I are sitting there. And and, uh, Lauren decides to walk around the pool. You know, toddler, she's walking around the pool. And I'm watching her and she gets by the deep end. So I kind of stand up and I notice she's reaching over the pool trying to get something out. And as you can guess, she falls in. Well, I was there in a second. I don't even know if she recognized the danger she was in. I got her out and everything was fine. But from that point on, when we walked around the pool, she was holding daddy's hand. She didn't know it was dangerous. See, dad, when you walk with your father, he knows things that are dangerous that you don't know are dangerous. When, when, you, when you pursue the vertical, when you, when you pursue his presence, he knows what things we may face that we don't think are dangerous, but he knows that they're dangerous. And if we're long as we're pursuing his presence, he will protect us from such things because God always blesses those who seek him. Always. So uh, he, he said, the seer is basically saying it was going to come true. You know, the king of Aram, this was of God. Basha's army would be here and Aram's army was going to come here and then you were going to wipe them both out because numbers are no big deal for God. But since you pulled the shenanigans, you didn't come like you'd used to. The king of Aram's army is going to give you fits in the future, which they ended up doing. He says in verse eight, he says, we're not the Cushites and the Libyans, a mighty army with great numbers of chariots and horsemen. Yet when you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. He's reminding them back. He says, remember back. And look what you did. You got your army together, but you didn't trust anybody. You went to God. How come you didn't go to God this time? How come you didn't seek his presence? Verse 9, he says, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. You have done a foolish thing, and from now on, 
you will be at war. Now, what might you expect from Asa? Last time he had the prophet in his presence, the seer in his presence, what did he do? He repented. He submitted himself to the word. He took courage in it. He honored the word of God. You think, okay, surely, okay, what's he's going to do right now? But that's not what he does right now. Verse 10, Asa was angry with the seer because of this. He was so enraged that he put him in prison. He said, how dare you? Who do you think you are? On the word of God. Who do you, no, no, who do you, don't give me that. Who do you think you are? I'm the king. Don't tell me. If, you're, if your vertical relationship with God is disintegrated, when people confront you, when the word of God confronts you, you know what you do? If you like it and it builds your empire, sure. But if you don't, you walk away. What, what, what does Asa do to the word of God here? He thinks he can imprison the word of God. I'm not going to submit to the Bible. It's going to submit to me. It's going to do what I say. It's out of here. Also, next phrase. Very interesting sentence. At that same time, Asa brutally oppressed some of the people. Remember when Asa's vertical relationship was strong and he was, he was seeking God? Remember what, what he did with the people? He celebrated with the people. He, he rejoiced with the people. But now, with his, with his vertical disintegrating, what's he do with the people? If you're not there to help build my kingdom, I've got no use for you. If you're weak, if you're struggling, if you're different, you're out of here. Your horizontal, the health of your horizontal will always be dependent on the health of your vertical. You see how somebody treats people, how somebody treats people who who are different, who are struggling. You get a good idea of where they are vertically. They'll know, doesn't scripture, didn't Jesus say this? They'll know you're Christians by your, your, your love. Yep. Yes, yes, yes. So this, God didn't give up on Asa, though. And verse 12. In the 39th year of the reign, Asa, Asa was afflicted with a disease in his feet. Though his disease was severe, even in his illness, he did not seek help from the Lord, but only from the physicians. Never commands us not to seek help from physicians, y'all. Uh, Luke was his physician. Paul tells Timothy, take a little wine for his stomach's sake. Uh, we praise God we live in an era where we've got that going on today. However... Only physicians. It's another issue. Let me, let me ask you. This is, this is important because I'm guessing that Asa here, this disease came from God in order to bring him back to God. But Asa didn't see it or he chose to not see it. Now, maybe let me get personal for a second. Maybe there's something in your life or has there been something in your life that's been chalked up to coincidence or somebody else's issues or injustices or whatever else, some, some bad thing that's happened to you, is it possible that God has entered that into your life in order to cause you to come back to him? Now, Asa never got it. He went to his grave bitter and angry and, and uh, not back with the Lord. Maybe this morning for you, God would come to you like he did Adam. He'd say, hey, where are you? You used to walk. You used to do some very effective and productive things for me, but you quit seeking me. And look what's happened. How far are you? Where are you? God would say, you can come back right now. You come back right. I'm calling you right now. Don't worry about get everything cleaned back up to get. That's not what it's about. 
Maybe you're in your life right now. You've got Zerah and the Cushites coming at you from the south and you've got Basha and Benadad coming at you from the north and you're just feeling way overpowered with the stuff that's facing you. Maybe God knows. And what, what he wants you to do is plan and, and make all the strategies. That's a good thing. It is a good thing. But he wants you to bring it to him. And you forgot that. Even though Asa had a huge army, he said, we rely on you, not our army. And so maybe you're dealing with something right now that you need. God would have you, want you to bring it to him. You know, when you do that, you know what you're doing? You're adding to your faith godliness, a seeking after him, a quest for him, a longing for him to be in your life. That's adding to your faith godliness. Now, I know what, what happens on Sunday. We, get, say, we say, man, we're done. We get going. We say, oh, hi. We start seeing someone we haven't seen in a while. We grab our coffee. We're out in the car. We almost hit somebody in the parking lot. We lose our sanctification. And by the time we get home, we'll forget what they said. We don't have a clue what was said anymore. And I hope and I, I pray. Um, and I do. And I have all week. That if God is moving in your, in your heart, if in fact you've been away. And maybe he's brought a disease of some sort in, into your, your life. Maybe you've got a zero the Kushites type army coming against you. And he just wants you to, to, to bring that to him. I pray that we don't go away and we forget. And so what we want to do is take a moment. Would you close your eyes with me? Bow your head. And in the, the sanctuary of your own heart, just you and the Lord. If he had his finger, if he was calling you this morning... Where are you? You can share with him. You can come back to him even right now. That, that pride and that bitterness and that anger that would cause us to chain the word of God will keep us from him. That would need to be broke. And just God, I submit myself to you. I'm not sure what to do or how to do it. And whether you heal me, whether you take care of this army, whatever you do, you're God. I give my life to you.